0: Welcome back to the Locked On Marlins podcast, your go to for all things Miami Marlins every single day. As always, I'm your host, Arm Layton. I'm a minor league play-by-play broadcaster, longtime Marlins writer, and prospect writer as well. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about the story that has been J.J. Bledet in spring training. He has been so impressive. And also a follow-up here on the Marlins opening day roster as a few more dominoes have fallen. We have a much better outlook on how things are going to look, especially now that Jazz Chisholm has officially won the job. The Marlins have reportedly... Basically come out and said that the two rule five draft guys, Zach Pop and Paul Campbell, will be in the bullpen. So it makes a much more simple and understandable way of being able to project this roster. I'm not going to go completely through everything again because it's still relatively similar to what I projected a week back when I was talking about what the Marlins opening day roster can look like, but there are some questions now that are answered and some adjustments. So I will Definitely hit on some of those points after these recent reports. But let's start with day real quick because day has just been so impressive. And when you look at the batting average, 236, I think is what it is in spring training, that doesn't really tell the whole story. It's a small sample size. So because of all of the power that he's hit for, he's also put up a 979 OPS. So you're going to have those a little bit of wonky numbers. But again, in spring training, it's mostly, especially with the prospects, And I was talking about this on the Locked On MLB Prospects podcast, which I also host. And just discussing all of the top prospects so far in spring training, not really any of them have been more impressive than J.J. Bleday in the recent days. And what I said on that podcast was basically – that you have to look more so at the eye test, which generally, you know, you got to factor in everything. But in spring training, you just need to be watching these at bats. How are they looking against major league competition, especially? Are they looking overmatched? Are they cheating? Do they look uncomfortable? What kind of swings are they taking? Those are the things to look at. And through the eye test so far, Boudet has been fantastic, especially when you consider what he's been doing damage against, or who he's been doing damage against. Mostly major league caliber pitching and oftentimes lefties. Specifically, you handpicked the most recent performance of his where he tripled and homered off of a pair of lefty major league pitchers. KK Kim, who he tripled off of, albeit Kim has struggled mightily in spring training, but he pitched to a 174 ERA or something like that last year in the major league season as a rookie a 32-year-old rookie, so he's pretty polished, but also just has been very impressive up until this spring. And Blade took him oppo, just shy of the wall, and also showed a little bit more speed than I think people give him credit for. I'm not saying he's a plus runner, but he's looking like an above-average runner at times when he gets going. That triple there was the opposite field for him, so it was to left center. And that's typically not a spot, especially in Roger Dean, where you're going to be able to stretch it to three. And Blade did that pretty easily. Then he went yard against Genesis Cabrera, who Eli Sussman pointed this out, I don't remember if it was from the Fist Stripes account or his personal. I'm going to guess it was the Fist Stripes account, but I know it was Eli. And Eli said that Genesis Cabrera was tough against lefties, pointing out that at the major league level last year, lefties were just 2 for 29 against Genesis Cabrera. So not only is it a major league southpaw, it's a major league southpaw that is really tough on left-handed hitters. Not for Blade, though, there. He goes opposite field again. This time it leaves the yard. And it's not like Roger Dean is some bandbox of a field. He had to poke it out of there. And I was just so impressed with the way he was hanging in there because we see Blade, very comfortable pull side. He will do some major damage middle in. And I've never had any concerns about him going the other way. He's always had power to all fields, but it's just been really nice to see him be able to let the ball travel more against lefties. We often see young hitters struggle with left on left and especially with that front side flying open not letting the ball travel not having the confidence that they can drive it and stay on top of it the other way but showed that confidence and what was surprising is they were actually shifted on him a little bit the, the cardinals were and it's going to be pretty obvious within a decent amount of at bats at the major league level i don't think that the shift is going to be too common on jj Bleday as he continues to show that comfort going to all fields i was just so impressed on how he stayed within himself on the left-on-left, especially because even some of the left-handed hitters that are more comfortable against southpaws, they still tend to be more contact-oriented with their approach. Blade seems like he's the type of guy that can be still contact-oriented and still do damage because of the bat speed that he has, the amount of time the barrel stays through the zone, and the easy carry that he gets on the ball. I've been so impressed with him. He also worked a lot of deep counts, was comfortable in the outfield, again, showing some more above average speed than we have maybe expected or seen. And then the other thing that I think is important when we consider the spring training stats on that side of it is that baseball reference does a pretty good job of referencing the Quality of competition in spring training. J.J. Bloodet's opponent quality was a rating of 7.3, which would mean it's right between A AA and A quality. So overall, from all of the arms he saw, and that was a little bit weighted down because earlier on he was facing more lower level competition towards the end more higher level competition, and he actually did just as much, if not more, damage at the end of the spring. So the quality of competition aspect of it is there too. So there's just not really much to be able to, I guess, invalidate what he's done. It's very real, and it's been a great sign for the Marlins, for Bode, and everybody involved on this side of things. And I think that it's going to be a really good momentum builder for Bode going into the season, a big confidence booster and he just looks the part. This is going to be the guy that somewhat disrupts all of the, in a good way, disrupts all of the inconsistencies we've seen with the Marlins prospects in the outfield. Some of the questions of like, okay, is this guy going to tap into his potential? And always just waiting, almost micromanaging their at-bats, hoping that they're going to continue to show this development that we're waiting on, tap into those tools more. It goes on and on. I don't think that's going to be the case with J.J. Boudet. He's just going to hit out of the gate, and there's not going to be that concern or debate or just questions around him, which is really refreshing, and I think Marlins fans deserve that with a prospect now after the way that the hitting prospects have gone as of late. Not to say that that means that anybody is Done or to write them off, but it is just nice to not have to worry and just see a guy climb right through pretty easily and then hit the ground running at the Major League level. I'm sure there'll be some stints and little growing pains at times with Bledet, especially at the Major League level, but overall, I think he's going to be a fast climber and there shouldn't be too many growing pains there. Well, speaking of climbing to the Major Leagues, I'm going to talk about some of the roster decisions the Marlins have made, or at least reportedly made, and how that implicates the rest of the picture for the fish as we get really close to opening day. Quickly, first, a reminder that this episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. There is no better place to place your bets than betonline.ag. It's the most trusted site for all of us here at the Locked On Network. As baseball season encroaches, it's the place you can go to Wager any of your future bets on the baseball season, bet on ball games for opening day. And best of all, if you go to betonline.ag right now and use the promo code locked on, that's one word locked on, you'll get a 50% welcome bonus with your initial deposit. That's betonline.ag, one word locked on for a 50%. Welcome bonus on your initial deposit, Bet online, your online sportsbook experts, also brought to you by Built Bar. We are deep into Built Bar madness right now as we try to figure out what is the best tasting Built Bar flavor, and right now, it is down to the wire. If you want to cast your vote, head over to Bar underscore Built on Twitter or BuiltBar.com. If you haven't tried a flavor yet, it's a good way to find out which flavors you should try because you can also Place an order right now using the promo code LOCKED15, that's LOCKED15, LOCKED15 for 15% off your next order of built Bars. They're low in calories, they're low in sugar, they're high in protein and low in fat. They're all covered in chocolate. What else could you want from a protein bar? And now we're going to find out which flavor is the best. You can help us find out or you can figure out which you are going to order now with your 15% off order as we get to the point of the final four for the Built Bar flavors. That's BuiltBar.com, promo code LOCKED15. So in this second half of the episode here, we're going to talk about the rest of the roster and how it's shaking out. And every waking moment of my life, I think I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm just like, how can Garrett Cooper get more at bats? It just keeps me up. It's haunting me. I don't know how it's not haunting the Marlins. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. Maybe Kim Ang is waking up like I am in the middle of the night in cold sweats trying to figure out how to get Garrett Cooper more at-bats, but I will say before Kim Ang got here, it didn't seem like the Marlins were too hell-bent on getting Garrett Cooper more at-bats. We've kind of seen it and you see it with Craig Mish on Twitter because Craig Mish is not one to make a strong stance. He has a great relationship with the team, with the Marlins, and that's because he's a professional and he does things the right way, but he also has a subtle way of trying to kind of jab his point in there. And I think he does a good job of that with Garrett Cooper. He just basically tweets the stats. He's not putting that much opinion in there. He's just saying Garrett Cooper is raking right now and there is not a clear-cut role for him. And it's kind of like if Garrett Cooper, he often says, if Garrett Cooper got X amount of at-bats, he would hit 40 home runs. That's his way of kind of saying, what are you doing, Marlins? How are you not getting this guy more at-bats? How are you not trying to figure out how to get this guy more at-bats? And the nutshell of this too, this kind of goes back to when we were starting the offseason. And one of the things that I said when the Marlins were tied to outfield candidates and i love the acquisition of adam duvall he's going to help this team he does Further complicate this situation here, but when I was looking at what the Marlins' offseason outlook was, I kind of thought that the right field and quote unquote need and the desire to go get an everyday right fielder was somewhat puzzling to me because you look at the Marlins and I think that Garrett Cooper would have slotted right into right field. I know that there's some concerns about him being an everyday player and there's some concerns as to how he can defend out there, but really when I look at the metrics, it's not the biggest sample size, but when you look at the defensive metrics, Garrett Cooper is not that bad out there. He's not going to go get the balls in the gap that maybe Adam Duvall is going to get. And Duvall is definitely way better than him defensively. But it wasn't like Cooper's this massive liability. Frankly, when we look at Corey Dickerson's defensive numbers and just the eye test last year, I don't think that Cooper is at any point going to be much worse than Dickerson was last year. I'll hedge that by saying Dickerson will be better this coming season, and he is a former Gold Glove winner somehow. But I think Dickerson will work it out this year, but it's just a larger point that the Marlins were very fine with Dickerson in the lineup every day playing the outfield last year, and he wasn't great out there. And then you also talk about the injury concerns. That's what the Marlins always cite when they talk about why they will not carve out a full-time role for Garrett Cooper. That's fine. I understand that. But what is any different with Corey Dickerson and his injury concerns? That guy has been in the league or at least at the major league level for longer than Cooper and has not played very many full seasons at all. I think he's only played on over 150 games twice and hardly over 150 games both those times. So I just don't really get that sentiment, right? It's like, yes, there are some injury concerns with Cooper, but some of that's bad luck. And with Dickerson, that guy's been hurt all the time too. And I think Dickerson's going to be a big bounce back candidate this year. So I'm not trying to bash Dickerson, but if we're trying to be fair here and compare Apples to apples and oranges to oranges, then why are we kind of using some of these arguments against Cooper? That could be used against Dickerson as well. And that's where I'm a little bit confused on it. I do like having the lefty bat. So that's why you got to have Dickerson in the lineup more. But again, it's just unique. Some of the ideas that the Marlins have on Garrett Cooper, at least have reportedly had or that we speculate is part of the reason that they don't play him more. And at the same time, there are some similar situations across the roster. But that's a larger point that you can't really do anything about now, right? The Marlins have Adam Duvall. He's going to help them defensively. He's going to help them pack a punch in the lineup as a big power bat, probably hitting in the cleanup spot. That is a great addition. That being said, is he that much better offensively than Garrett Cooper? No, he's not. He's not going to hit as consistently. Maybe he'll hit a few more home runs. But I also believe that if you have Cooper in the lineup every single day, he would probably put up a somewhat similar home run total to Adam Duvall. So when you look at the decision In a nutshell, I think it's defensively driven and also it's the injury concern, which again, I get. And I'm assuming that the Marlins were also assuming that there'd be a designated hitter this year. And that's the big caveat here is if the Marlins knew that there'd be no designated hitter for sure, then they probably would have navigated differently. We probably wouldn't see one of Aguilar or Duvall on this ball club and that's why you got to give the Marlins a benefit of the doubt in that regard and something that I probably should have prefaced with still it's just more so on Major League Baseball in that in that aspect of it because the Marlins had to make that decision on Aguilar as I talk about all the time without knowing what the DH situation was so it was basically just a baseball saying build your roster and figure it out even though you really can't build your roster when you don't know what your lineup is going to look like. It's by by far the dumbest thing I can think of in recent sports history. And it makes me want to put my head through a wall. So I'm going to move on to another topic. Jazz wins the second base job. I don't think there's much suspense there anymore because of the struggles we saw with Isan Diaz and struggles is putting it lightly. I hope that everything's going all right with Isan between the ears because he does look like he is just a little bit in his own head at the plate right now, but also I've been watching him more closely and looking at him more with my locked-on MLB prospects hat on and more so as just a prospect in general, and I see some issues and some red flags there and the number one thing is the bat speed or lack thereof he does generate pretty easy power that's largely due to the fact that he has that leverage in his swing he has a little bit of an uppercut but a nice sweet swinging uppercut that generates really easy backspin like we see with jazz chisholm too jazz is a little bit more steep but he's also way way quicker the lack of bat speed for isan kind of forces him to have to cheat a little bit because he's not catching up to those elevated fastballs, so he's trying to catch those out front. When you try to catch those fastballs out front and be ready for those, when you get a changeup or when you get a breaking ball, you are going to whiff pretty badly. And that's what we were seeing with Isan. The other thing too is even when he was sitting dead red on a fastball, he would still be late on it. How many times, now when I'm telling you this, I feel like you might be picturing it. How many times did you see Isan Diaz foul off good fastballs or like good fastballs to hit in hitters counts or early in the count. And then quickly you're in a two strike situation. That is a big issue because when you're fouling away, then maybe the one or two pitches, you're going to be able to get to see or get to hitting in that bat, and then you're at the pitcher's whim. And of course, you're not going to be able to square up every single ball, but I just saw Ysan Diaz foul off so many good pitches to hit, and it makes sense when you tie it all in with the lack of bat speed. Just a little bit late on him, fouls him away, and then you're in that... Kind of defense mode, but also you don't really trust yourself to catch up to the fastball. So you're still cheating out a little bit and then you get the breaking ball and you're screwed. And that's kind of what I saw with Isan Diaz. And I think that was part of the issue through the minor leagues. The pitchers just weren't as good enough to expose that as much, but they still did. The good ones still did. That's why we saw that high strikeout rate consistently through the minor leagues, and I think that's part of the reason why we saw the high walk rate, is he was just fouling off a lot of pitches, he had a good eye, but he was fouling off pitches he should have been hitting, which would have lowered the walk rate, because if it's 1-0, or 0-0, or 0-1, and there's a pitch down the middle, or a hittable pitch, and you foul it away, and you're working deeper into account now, and those mistakes that you should be putting in play are now being fouled away, and you're going deeper into counts, You're going to strike out more and you're going to walk more. So you're just putting yourself kind of at the pitcher's whim a bit more. And we'll see how things go for Isan Diaz now as he goes to AAA and how he will be able to adjust in those regards but sometimes bat speed is something you can't control too too much unless you get after it in the weight room and get after it physically where I think that Isan has a smooth swing the mechanics are there but you got to get after it in the weight room and you got to be able to make those physical changes and improve in that regard as we're seeing across the league big time because there is a huge emphasis on that for good reason you got to be quicker with the bat to be able to keep up with the quicker velocity now that we're seeing at the highest level and it's not even as much about being stronger so you can hit it farther it's being quicker and twitchier that comes with the right strength and the right just muscle memory that you're able to create through getting after it in certain aspects of the weight room. So going on to the rest of the roster, because now we know that Isan's going to be at AAA and get a chance to work on things there. Jazz gets the second base job, which I love now because also he's going to be protected a bit too. He won't have to face all the tough lefties where he'll get mostly right-handed pitchers and then against the tougher lefties, that's where John Birdie comes in and you have the clear-cut leadoff guy there. Long term, I think Jazz is going to be fine against lefties, somewhat going back to the Day thing where Jazz looks pretty comfortable against left-handed pitching, but he definitely goes way more contact-oriented, which is totally fine, but he does way more damage against righties. 19 of his 21 home runs came against right-handed pitching in 2019 through the minor leagues, so Birdie right now can protect him a bit more. You put Jazz in more situations to have success and ease him into the big leagues a bit more because, as I said before, I still think Jazz could use some more seasoning before his Major League debut, but now that Isan has struggled, Jazz is the obvious best option for the fish and could make a big difference if he does Hit the ground running, but you can ease him into it a bit more by protecting him from those lefties that may give him some fits. Going back now to Cooper, he's going to split some time at first with Aguilar. I think he's going to get some at-bats in right and make some starts in right when Duval is out of the lineup or if he's in a slump or going through a tough stretch. He'll also get some starts in right when the Marlins are facing a lefty because then Duvall can go to left field as he's the better defender and that's probably how you keep Dickerson out of the lineup against some of the tougher lefties and then have more at-bats for Cooper. The unfortunate Fortunate thing is there's only going to be 10 games where the Marlins have a DH as they only play 10 road interleague ball games. That's only going to be 10 guaranteed starts where the lineup just won't be an issue. It'll be so nice to have, but that's not that many. And you're going to have to figure out how to navigate it the rest of the way, and the Marlins are going to have to find a way because it's going to be a crime if he's not at least getting 500 plate appearances by the end of the year, so they better get creative. Looking at the rest of the outfield now, it seems like both Brinson and Sierra are going to make the roster, which means one less pitcher, which I'll get to the bullpen in a second here. But now Brinson and Sierra both as extra outfielders, it seems like both of them is a bit unnecessary. As I talked about before, too, because now you have Cooper, who's a guy that can and will make some outfield starts. You also have John Birdie, who I don't like in the outfield, but could also play out there. So why use a roster spot on two extra outfielders on top of Marte, Dickerson, Duvall, presumably Cooper considered a part time outfielder as well? I maybe would rather have that roster spot used for an extra pitcher, especially with some of the innings limits that the Marlins may have on certain prospects that are pitching this year, like Sixto or Trevor Rogers, maybe even Eliezer. And Pablo Lopez's questions around his long-term health just because of some of the arm flare-ups he's had, I wouldn't mind having just a more bolstered bullpen and a swing man that can make some spot starts to spread things out. That's where I would rather have that roster spot used for the pitcher instead of another extra or two redundant players in Brinson and Sierra. Maybe the Marlins can find a trade partner for Sierra or Brinson, but ultimately I'd rather use that roster spot on the bullpen or that extra swingman. Lastly, you look at the bullpen, it's gonna be Bass, Garcia, Floro, Blyer, Curtis, Seinberg, Detweiler, Campbell, and Pop now, which means Hoyt's gonna get optioned. I think Detweiler is gonna get scrapped relatively early in the season. The Marlins have some other left-handed pitching options out of the bullpen that they can bring up as well. So Detweiler may just be a stopgap for a month while they sort out what's going on with the rest of the ball club at the minor league levels and who could be ready to really just come into the bullpen and help as a lefty. I thought it was a really big mistake for the Marlins to give Detweiler a guaranteed major league deal so early in the free agency process, especially seeing how the free agent market ended up shaking out. That was definitely a mistake. And now the Marlins will probably have to eat that money if wire struggles. It's not a ton. I think it's $750,000. But with the way the Marlins have been pinching pennies this offseason, that's definitely not a guaranteed deal that you'd really just want to give up just to give up. I love that Campbell and Pop both made. The bullpen, Campbell can even start and, and go deep into games like four, five, six innings if needed. He has made plenty of starts through his minor league career. Pop has closer caliber stuff. I don't know about Seinberg and Detweiler. We're gonna have to see. is very interesting, and I like him as just a heavy ball pitcher that's gonna get ground balls and could potentially be better and continue to get better, but also has some questions just because he throws so weird and has a very unique pitch usage that. Works for some guys or really doesn't work for others, so we'll have to see on that. The other thing I wanted to give a nod to is the fact that I don't want to see Sixto Sanchez start the season right away if he doesn't have to, right? Like, if he is not totally ready, and we've seen that the Marlins are easing him in, he got a late start to spring training, and now he might not be ready to go right out of the gate that's not a big deal. That almost works in his favor and it works in the Marlins' favor. Give Nick nyder two starts, a little bit of an audition or a cameo at the Major League level so we can see what he's got and just if he can build off of this spring training. And then it also gives you a better chance to have Sixto Sanchez pitch deeper into the season. I'd rather have him going deeper into the year than starting right away. And that also gives the Marlins an opportunity to see what they've got with nyder That seems like the obvious answer there. While nothing is set in stone yet on the Marlins roster, that's going to be the interesting development as we move forward, and I'd like to see what nyder can do as we start this season. He doesn't have that much more to prove at the minor league level, and I want to see what he can do at the major league level, especially after a strong spring. The rotation, though, should look like with a healthy Sixto that's ready to go, Sandy, Pablo, Sixto, Eliezer, and Trevor Rogers. And again, just Trevor Rogers has been so so impressive. I am so excited to see what he's going to do. This season as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you're as excited about Blade, the Marlins opening day roster and just this ball club. As we get so close to the start of the season, I cannot wait. And we will see when the roster is finally set in stone with the Marlins do. If they decide to make a move, I wouldn't be shocked, but I'd be expecting the roster to look something like this as we get ready for the season. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you to those who take the time to leave reviews. They're incredibly helpful for me and really help with visiting visibility. It is so awesome to see all the support and the numbers going up as everybody is geared up for the season, just as I am as well. And I look forward to talking Marlins baseball with you tomorrow.